So um, last week, I asked you if uh, you wanted, well, I told you this, and then I asked you to take a look in your checkbook. If you, if you were wondering what was important in your life, you could open the register of your checkbook, and you could see where you spent your money, and you'd say, oh, that's what's important. Today, because last week this scripture was originally parted, supposed to be part of last week's sermon, but as I was doing it, I was thinking, do I really want to be the freight train in the middle of their lives and just come crashing through everything, or just go a little slower? So that's what I did. I split it in half last week. This week, though, I want us to sort of open up, if you will, the checkbook of your heart and look at where you spend and, and pay attention to what you do with your life. But let's read the scripture first, and then we'll go on with that, okay? This is uh, from Luke chapter 6, verses 36 to the end of the chapter. Um, and I did this with Margene. I said Luke 6, 36, and I put an FF behind it, which is pastor speak for and following. And she goes, what's the FF mean? So if you didn't know that, that's what that means to the end of the chapter, FF or pastor speak for as much as I want to read. So here we go. I'm going to start with chapter, verse 36. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. By the way, if we know Jesus, then he is our, then God is our father, and so we must be compassionate as our father is compassionate. And this is how that works out. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Give and you will receive your gift. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and pouring into your lap. Let's, let's hear that again. The image is, is, is a grain bag on your lap and you're sort of doing this on it to get as much into the bag, okay? But you can't get it all in because it's just going to keep coming. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. That's quite an image, isn't it? You ever had your lap full of stuff and when you get up it just sort of spills everywhere? You might as well, in this case, you can feel free to spill on the people near you when it's blessings like that. The amount you give will determine the amount you give back. And then Jesus gave the following illustration. Can one blind person lead another? Won't they both fall into a ditch? Students are not greater than their teacher, but the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you, can, when you can't see past the log in yours. Hypocrite. By the way, hypocrite used to be an actor. In the world, they used to call them hypocrites. But that also means to pretend to be something you're not. Get first, get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. 
A good person produces good things from the treasury of their heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? By the way, at this point of the gospel, only two people in the story, as Luke tells it, have called him Lord yet. One was a leper who was healed, and Peter. Nobody else has called him Lord yet. But why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when somebody comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house against, without a foundation, and when the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse in a heap of ruins. Be compassionate as your father is compassionate. Be compassionate as your father is compassionate. I want to say that as we do this, as we start coming into this word of compassion, the very next thing is don't judge and don't condemn, but forgive and give. Let me tell you one thing that God never does that humans do really well. God never judges without the whole story. He never judges without the whole story. So he knows the context of everything that happens. He knows who did the did the worst part of it, and he knows who egged them on. I tell the story about this. The, you know, um, I have two kids, and they're radically different from each other, and those of you who know that know that. Alex used to sit in a spot, and he would play with Legos quietly for three and a half hours. Marika needed your attention every 35 seconds. But when they were playing together and they were fighting and Marika would do something, she would say, Alex, hit me. And I would say, now what did you do? Because Alex wouldn't know anybody else was in the room until somebody started bugging him. And if he hit her, it was because he had been driven to distraction generally. Now, I don't know that that's exactly always the truth, but I could characterize it that way because I was the one raising them, so I saw it on a daily basis. But he, this God of compassion, always judges when he judges with the full story. And he invites us not to do that. Don't judge without the full story. Now here, here's the next piece of this puzzle for you, okay? How many of you know the full story of every bit of your own life? Let's say for a second that you know an amazing 10% of everything that's happened around you in your own life. That probably means that you have a part of your life that you don't know anything about and it's still affecting you. Could you grant me that? Maybe you know 85% of that 15%. You get in that spot and you go, now why did I do that? And you did something and you don't know why. But if you don't even know your own story, I invite you to not pretend that you know somebody else's story better than you know your own. Now, I'm going to read a little bit. This, this is a little bit of a painful thing. I want to back this up. Uh, 
um, somebody, I was talking with Joe Coates the other day, and he asked me who my favorite three theologians were. And I said, well, funny thing about that is I have a, a seminary prof who invited us to find three completely trustworthy theologians that we could find, and you just submit yourself to their teaching. You just read them over and over again. You let that stuff wash over you and just do that. This is one of mine. His name is Miroslav Volf. He did his doctorate at Yale and is now the heart and soul of Yale Divinity. But when he finished his doctorate, he was called up for compulsory service in the military in his home country of Yugoslavia. Okay? So you think, there is no Yugoslavia anymore. That was a creation of the, of the Iron Curtain world. And you're right. But there was things going on in that country, and he was a theology student in a world where they thought that was the enemy. And so he had his year and a half of compulsory service in a jail cell being interrogated every day for a year and a half by a man named Captain G. And when his year and a half was over, he was released from the military and and came back to the Western world. This is what he says. So first I'm going to read you a little bit about this book. is called The End of Memory, Remembering Rightly in a Violent World. Once you've been taken, once you have taken a man to pieces under questioning, and once you've laid out the bits on the table and put them together again, then a strange thing happens. Either you love him or you hate him for the rest of your life. He will either love you or hate you in return. I don't know what my interrogator felt for me, but I felt absolutely no love for him. Only cold, enduring anger, and even vengeance. If it were possible, would I, I would, alter, would not alter, but I sensed, maybe more subconsciously than consciously, that if I gave in to what I felt, I would be not responding as a free human being, but reacting as a wounded animal. Strong words. And it didn't matter whether that reaction happened in the physical world, which was impossible because I was not near him or in my imagination. To act as a human being is to honor feelings, even the thirst for revenge. But it is also to follow moral requirements stitched by God into the fabric of our humanity. And so I just want you to know he's wrestling with what he should do with Captain G. This is what he said. This is how Christ affects him. One died for all. That includes me. Wrapped up in that piece of good news is the condemning accusation that I too am a wrongdoer. How does the history of my own wrongdoing figure into into my condemning memory of Captain G.? Not at all. Then I could always stand radically outside the company of wrongdoers as I remember his wrongdoing. He would be in the darkness and I was in the light. But would that be right? Moral judgments are not absolute judgments. They are always comparative judgments. And so to remember Captain G abuse rightly, must I not remember it as an act of self-confessed wrongdoing in myself? rather than make myself a saint. What he's saying here is that as he remembers and he's working through Captain G, offenses to him, which were many, in order to do that rightly, Dave. Okay. 
something did what I said once. In order to do that, he has to literally remember that he's done wrong things to other people too. And, and in, order to for, in order to get to a spot where he can only blame Captain G for the wrongdoing, he has to forget that he ever did anything wrong to anybody else. Be compassionate as your father is compassionate. Everybody has done something in the world. One died for all. Jesus died for sinners, of which Paul says, I am the greatest. In other words, the closer he gets to God, the more he is aware of the wrongdoing in his life. And and we've been talking about this, what it means to be a child of the Father. Well, a child of the Father knows two things. For sure, absolutely, okay? A child of God knows that they can't do it on their own. How do we say that? We know we need help. And so Jesus comes, and I had a professor that says, literally, you could translate if you wanted to, Jesus' name as Yahweh to the rescue. God saves. The second thing they know is that when they call out for help, they got grace. Now, wrapped up in that grace is this moment of judgment where he says, yes, you do need help. You've not done that right. But it's not the judgment that says, you, you've done it wrong. You go sit in a corner for seven and a half hours, and then I'm going to come help you. It's, you've done wrong, and I know how to fix that. I'll come alongside and help. These are the things we know. And so what Jesus says is this. You want to know how to, how to meet this life and do this, that a blind person can't lead you there. Somebody that doesn't know God can't teach you about God. And so if you want to know what God's like, then go meet him at his son Jesus who knows him and can explain him to him. That's what John 1.16 literally says, that nobody has seen God at any time but his one and only son who's explained him to us. That's that's not just a little piece of Scripture just thrown in there at the side. It says, look, you have a guide. There he is. Go listen to him. It doesn't say go find Dave, the bad dude, and follow him around. Now, some of us make that mistake in life. How many of you have made the mistake of following the wrong person around in your life and doing what they say? Do you know, don't raise your hand. That is a rhetorical question not meant for your confession. A blind person cannot lead you there. A student is not greater than his master. By the way, this is one of those things. I was listening to some lectures on the way back last night. I was... a uh, I'm a little tired. If I'm off my game today, you'll understand that I was officiating a wedding in concrete Washington, and I didn't leave there till 5.30 last night. And that's a long drive. And I feel a little off my game, but I know that God's in charge. Well, anyway, when we do this, I was listening to these lectures on the way, and a guy asked the professor who I was listening to, Um, what he thought about this. And he goes, well, the Bible doesn't tell me, and I don't presume to know what the Bible doesn't tell me. I could make a guess, but let's not do that. And then he went on, and he just took the next question. He goes, it's not a question that I know, and I don't make up things 
on this topic. We know we need a Savior, we have a teacher, and we need to submit to that teaching, and we don't begin to think that we have a better way halfway through than our teacher. To those teachers in the room, how many of you love students who say, you're not doing that right, I know how to do it better? Is there a teacher in the room that's heard that? I see at least one face going, "Uh uh-huh. Karen's not in the room. She's dealing with something, and I can tell you that. Oh, I see two faces saying that. As the math teacher, you've never had anybody say, oh, there's another. This is the teacher teacher section of the room. And then over here, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I included over here. There's a lot of teachers in the room here today, and none of you ever really put up with a student for very long who said, the math you're doing isn't right, or my mom says the punctuation has to be this way. We're not greater than our teacher. We become like him. But what happens when we become trained and mentored like him is we become like him. And we become merciful as God is merciful. And we we don't judge without the whole story because God only judges when he has the whole story. And we become like this God. So here's, here's the first step for us. Okay, Jesus talks to, it, talks to us in a way, you know, in the same way that when we go to kindergarten, we're learning. So we're back on teacher topics here. When you're going to kindergarten, I found out this morning that when I went to kindergarten, I got naps. And they don't do that anymore. I'm very sad. Life has changed. But kindergarten is there so that you get used to a schedule and some other things. And then you get to first grade and they give you more. And you get to go longer and everything. So small steps, right? Baby steps in faith in the same way. What's the first thing you need to do? Rather than go, I need help. I need a savior. The next step you do is you don't go out going, you, you're a sinner too. The first step, Jesus says, is that you don't go out and mess with the speck in somebody else's eye until you get rid of the plank or the log or the moat or whatever language you want to use, in your own eye. First off, everybody can see it. And so when you're trying to help somebody else with theirs, they're going, well, yours is bigger. Deal with it. So first off, deal with your own stuff with the Lord. It says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why is it fear and trembling? Because it's not done overnight, and it's tender work. In the same way that Miroslav Volf says, I have to remember that Captain G had a family that loved him and he did good for them. And so if I judge him only on the basis of the evil deeds that he did in my life, then I've not judged him properly. That's quite a thought, isn't it? From somebody that was interrogated every day for 500 days or whatever, 365 plus 182 and a half is. Here we go. The second step. So first thing is, you get the thing out of your eye and suddenly you can help. But you didn't take the log out of your own eye without assistance, did you? No, you said, Jesus, I need help. By the way, that's the thing. You go, I need help. Help. And he comes. And he doesn't come over here and he doesn't grab that thing out of your ear and go, and just rip the tape off. The Band-Aid doesn't come off. It comes off slow and gentle-like. 
So if you're going to become a child of the Father in the same way, let's say that it is time to help somebody else with something in their eye. How did you get it out of your eye? With gentle care. So wouldn't you like to help in the way that God helps? So if somebody's got something in their eye and you come in and say, you know, I had something in my eye and this is the way God got it out. Would you like that out of your eye? Maybe we can help. And that's different than get that out of your eye. First, you take care of your own mess. Second, it takes a good tree to produce good fruit. That's what he says. You get this new heart, this new spirit in you. We talked about that from Ezekiel 36, 24 and following. Remember, FF behind a verse means as far as the pastor wants to go. Ezekiel 36, I will, I will sprinkle you with water and you will be clean and I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put a new spirit in you and then that new spirit in you will cause you to follow my decrees and become like me, right? You get a new grounding and footing in your life. Now, how do you do that? It takes a good tree to produce good fruit and bad tree to produce bad fruit and every tree is known by its fruit. How are you known? What comes out of your mouth? What's the treasury of your heart? What's the, what's the blessing that's been poured out, shaken out, and, and poured into your lap? This is how we do this, because it keeps going. Right? What's the final story here? That a, that a man builds a house on the stone, and he clears the foundation, and he's got a good foundation. Here's how you do this. This is, this is what was given to me in the first service to say it's not from my notes. This is it. So you've got a life, and it's got good stuff and bad stuff in it, yeah? Some of it's busyness and some of it's work that you actually need to get done, and it takes the same amount of time, and you've got to do it together somehow. And so you start clearing the underbrush in your life, and you try to look for the ground that you walk on because walking on a path that you can't see is hard. And so sometimes you get down here like this and you start clearing away, you know, maybe, maybe I don't need that busyness over there. But right over here, I see God working in my life. Have any of you ever seen anything in your life and suddenly blessing just starts to pop out of an area and it's like, wow, you know that, I really like it when that happens. Yeah, do you have a spot in your life like that where something's going on and you go, I really like that. Let's have more of that. I want more ice cream socials and peaches and cream than, than broccoli. I'm sorry for those of you who like broccoli. <laughs> That's not fair. Some of you love broccoli. I don't, but it's all right. And so what you do is you, you clear out that spot on the ground. You go down and you see where God's working and you wander over where he's working and you join him there and you build your house there. We don't pitch our tent in the valley of the shadow of death. That's not going to be any fun. Don't do that. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death is not, I want to live there for a while. We could set up condominiums. No, set up your condominium in the place where God's working in your life and build your foundation there. Matter of fact, when you start getting hope in your life and you start doing that and then you build your house there and you spend more time thinking about that, then pretty soon that infects the rest of your life and and I just used infect in a, in a different way, didn't I? And pretty soon, good stuff starts flowing out of you. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. 
So let me tell you this. If you spend all your time, all your time contemplating all the things wrong in your life, what's the abundance of your heart? Anyone? Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. Sadness. Right? If you do that, if you've got stuff going on in your life, look, we all got stuff going on. If it's the definition of why we live, then it will come out of our lives and our mouths and spill on everybody. But this is it. I love this verse. I'm going to read it again. It's the most fabulous thing we could read. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. How? Pressed down, shaken, to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. Go park your car in the spot where God's working. Build your foundation there. Live there for a little bit. There's going to be other stuff that you have to go out. I mean, when you pitch your tent, you don't stay in the tent and say, boy, I really like that area. You pitch your tent and you walk around and you see the stuff. So, I mean, there's going to be stuff that's not as fun. But park your car, pitch your tent, build your foundation on that spot where God's working. By the way, that is almost the entirety of what it means to be a Christian. Notice where God's working and go join him. And you thought it was hard. Just notice it and turn and go over there. And out of the abundance of that that's poured into your lap, that whenever you get up, it just spills all over, spill that abundance on the people around you. And pretty soon, those people around you who have difficulties in their lives, if they're willing, notice that I said that, because not everybody is willing, not everybody is willing to see good things in somebody else's life because they've parked their car in the bad spot of their life. That isn't a reason for judgment on them. That is a reason for mercy and grace and hope to be poured out on them so that maybe they can look up from that spot and go, hey, I need help too. I know somebody that has hope in their life. I wish I had hope in their life. Maybe they can help me figure out how to do that. No student is greater than their teacher but a student who is fully trained will become like their teacher. That's what that means. That pretty soon that joy and abundance just right on out. Out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. Out of the foundation of your house, it stands. Build your stand on build your house on hope. And then you can live a life of hope. And wouldn't that be much better than a life of regrets or a life of condescension or any other negative sort of description you want to pick? A child of the Father does these things just as his preeminent son God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son could be translated preeminent son. However, it's a, it's a funky Greek word that means lots of things to us. His only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life is a term that means lots of things too. It's not just life that goes on and of a different quality that's been, it's, it's a new birth. It's such a big deal that it's not like you just got wet and took a bath, but, but your whole life changed. 
because you you submitted and and something new happened in your life and then it's going to take over so let it take over help it cooperate with the takeover and then it will be given to you and poured in and shaken down and pour in, poured into your lap overflowing may you have that life will you pray with me Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for the way that you begin as a guide like kindergarten begins for school. Help us, Lord. Help us take the little step in front of us and know that we're following you and not somebody that doesn't know the way. Thank you for your love and grace and peace in our lives. May we notice it. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.